It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, and welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Harbin Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Harbin Institute of North America. We're recording this episode on Friday, April 3rd, a special episode in advance of Passover, the Pesach Seder taking place next week. And today we'll be talking about food, superstitions, anxieties, things that excite us, cooking for Pesach, planning a Pesach Seder, uh, what it feels like, and most importantly, what it tastes like. For this episode, I'm joined today by an old and dear friend, Sandra DeCapua. Sandra, first of all, thanks so much for being with us today. And why don't you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about your background and what brings you here today? Sure. I'm so happy to be here. Um, as you could have said, my name is Sandra. I am professionally a partner at a company called CoCreate NYC. We do mostly experiential retail. We owned and operated the Kellogg's store in New York City, but now we really focus on Union Square Play, which is a play space and resource for families with kids zero to three. And now we're on this virtual sort of extravaganza of making everything available online. My background in food is I grew up in a Jewish household, a mixed household of Sephardic and Ashkenazi parents. Um, my mom was never, my mom's an awesome cook, but was never really like project based, but super traditional. My grandmothers are both amazing cooks, but I have aunts that are more, as we'll talk about, I think a little bit later, project based and sort of like adventurous in what they cook. Um, so I learned a lot about traditions from my mom and I had this like sort of sense of adventure, um, I think for my aunts and my grandmothers. I wanted to initially go to culinary school after high school. My parents didn't love that idea and made me go to college. And I spent all my time in college working in restaurants, cooking, uh, running the late night grill in my dorm. And my first job after college was working for Joan Nathan, an amazing Jewish cookbook author. She was working on a book at the time on the food of the Jews of France which is a wildly diverse community. And so I did research for her recipe testing and learned actually a ton about different Passover traditions from her and from her sense of adventure and cooking other people's foods and just sort of being shameless in adapting and adopting. To this day, I love food, I love cooking, and Passover is for sure my favorite holiday. So It smells so great in my house right now. You just said French Jewish food, and um, I made a cassoulet this, early this Ooh. morning for us to eat on Shabbat. What's in your cassoulet? Oh, whatever I could find. Vegetables. We got some beautiful farmer's market turnips. I have awesome. some old carrots. Old carrots are, are awesome and things like that. Some sausage that was in the fridge and some short oh. it's, And then a whole bunch of random grains and beans. It's not traditional by any stretch of the imagination, but it's like a perfect uh, thing. And, and I guess what the reason I'm, I wanted to talk about this today, you know, usually this podcast is talking about big Jewish questions, capital B, capital J, capital Q. Uh, but this is my real passion, um, is talking about talking about and um, and doing food. And I've never had any training, but it actually, I, I, I find it thrilling, um, both because of the cultural resonances, but also just because it's, 
It's the one thing I do in my life that um, I actually do with my hands. I, I sometimes come back from a day of work, which is all about thinking and talking. And I feel the need to be creative and to do something that is not long term. Like you put it on the table, people eat it, they're happy. There's like an immediate return. Totally. I mean, talk about this all the time with cooking Shabbat, especially because it just happens all the time that we spend like, you know, a whole day actually cooking it or whatever, you know, compiling hours, cooking it, thinking about it, talking about it. And then in 45 minutes, it's just, it's done. And all you're left with is a memory for better, for worse, right? Like sometimes it's for the better that it never happens again. And sometimes it's just like, you sort of have a nostalgia about it, but it's not just memory, it's love. I mean, uh, I there's this just immediacy, I feel like, with my family to put something on the table. And and I, actually, it's been the one silver lining, for lack of a better word, of this crisis is that this has been the longest I've been at Hartman in 10 years where I haven't been on a plane. And uh, that has included us sitting down and having dinner together as a family, the five of us, every night, basically, since this crisis hit, which basically never happens. Uh, and it takes an hour a day. That's it. Just five o'clock. I make dinner, whatever we have happen to have around. And it, it creates like order and joy and calm at the end of the day. And I, I don't know, I don't quite know what's going to feel like on the other end of this when some of that goes back to, well, we sit together when we're, when we're together for Shabbat and for holidays. Well, I was talking yesterday to a pediatric nutritionist. I was interviewing her for a thing that we were doing for Union Square Play. And we said the same exact thing. The silver lining of all this is that everybody's having dinner together. And we were talking about it in the context of like toddler eating habits and picky eating and like the showmanship that comes from like kids sort of like eating alone and being the center of attention and like making choices and like this weird tension that comes of it. But the beauty of sitting together and you guys are five, we're, we're three, it's just us and my husband and I and our daughter. But even that, it's like, even in the city, we don't do it. It's just, except for Friday night. Now to have this, I think that when we go back to the city, I think a lot of people, or back to reality, rather, a lot of people are going to keep this tradition because it's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it also favors people who are, I think probably like you and me, like, not scavengers, but sort of thrive on opening the pantry and opening the fridge and being like, what's here? We're in conservation mode, not in like, ah, no leftovers mode. Totally. And I'm thinking that way about Passover also, because I'm trying to limit the amount of, we're basically, we can't get food delivery anymore. So limiting the amount of grocery store trips. And so I've already had to say, you know, it's not a, it's not like usually on Passover, you know, I have like 20 different supermarket trips and a really coherent list. And this year I'm like, you know what? I got what I got and we're going to figure out it on the basis of what we have. And that's its own kind of um, interesting challenge. But let me go back to, you said at the beginning, um, the Passover is your favorite holiday. So why? Um, why both nostalgically, Jewishly, or even foodily? I think I use, I mean, and it's, it's really weird to be saying in front of you, but I, we t- I talk a lot as a result of one of your books about history versus memory. And like, I think Passover is like the perfect example. And it's so funny because two years ago with my niece, Noah, who's now seven at the time she was five, and she was learning in school about the difference between fiction and nonfiction. I'm just cracking up. And she said to my brother, is the Passover story fiction or nonfiction? And it turned into like this hilarious conversation about like explaining to a five-year-old like miracles and like elements that could be factual, like this whole whatever crazy thing. But I digress. I think it's like a really amazing example of like the Jewish story and sort of like history not really mattering so much. 
and it all being about memory. And so part, so part of it is that part of the story. And then part of it is like that Passover really feels like the blending of my families. Like there's stuff that we do that's like very Sephardic and there's stuff that we do that is so Ashkenaz that we never really do during the year. And it's really a testament to my mom having put all this smushed it all together into one certain things that stay and certain things that go and like the permissiveness to change certain things. And then the anxiety around not changing other things. What's um, the Like the Horoset recipe is always exactly the same. It's a date Horoset. It's actually in jo- one of Joe Nathan's first books, which is funny because it's not like I'm saying it was my great grandmother's recipe. It's like just something that probably my mom started making, making very early on. And now it's the Horoset that everybody eats on both sides of my family. And it's simple. It's just, it's like you cook down dates, you blend it in the food processor and you top it with chopped toasted walnuts. And the beauty of it is that then it's, that's it. That's it. And I think other people probably have wine to it or raisins or it's really for us, it's just dates. And then you, you would put walnuts on top. And the beauty is that for the rest of the week, it serves as like jam, right? You, you eat it on matzah bar, you eat it on matzah, or you just have a spoonful of it, whatever it is. That's yeah. like, it feels like the one thing that never changes. We also always have lamb though the preparation of the lamb, my lamb every year and I'm in charge of it changes and I don't feel an anxiety about that. But that's my, in my grandmother's house, they always eat lamb, which I know for some people is off, you know, you yeah, can't allowed to do that. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, we, um, like your family, our immediate family, Stephanie and, and I and the kids are of mixed heritage. My family is like Ashkenazi, probably all, all the way back from the darkest uh, regions of uh, Eastern Europe. And Stephanie's family is Tunisian and Iraqi. So we grew up with really different food cultures around Pesach, both kidney you know, the eating of legumes, but also just things that are not legume related, like different harosets mm-hmm. and different practices, etc. And um, actually, right after we got engaged, our parents met each other for the first time on Pesach. That was a crazy, dumb idea. So my parents flew out. I hadn't met before. My parents, Stephanie's parents, hadn't met. Um, we were very, very young so for another time. Uh-huh. And, uh, and they flew out to Los Angeles to meet my in-laws. And my mother-in-law was like in a straight-up panic about what she could cook because she can't all the normal things that she would cook during the intermediate days of Pesach. And she tried really hard, but she wound up having some legumes in the food because like, she didn't know, like, how would you know that peas is something you can't, like, it's a green vegetable. What do you mean? It's not rice. And like, it, it was a moment between our two families. I experience a lot more kind of, I don't want to say superstition because that sounds judgmental, but like a commitment to kind of what Pesach should look like on both ends. And it's been an interesting navigation for us building a household that wants to respect both of those things and navigating like when we have members of our family together, knowing that they need Pesach to feel a certain way. Like it won't, it won't make sense for my mom if for there to be a bowl of rice on the table doesn't feel right. And yet for our kids, we're trying to get them to be like the inheritors of these different traditions. And the funny thing is that it winds up that the cultural traditions that we've basically invented are the ones that are ultimately sticking with them the most. Like we do six charosets. And the one that everybody likes the most is the one we invented, which is called Hawaiian charoset, (laughs) which is like a mango, mango and coconut and uh, macadamia nuts 
and passion fruit wine and it is outrageously good but now like now my kids are like you know what are we going to do the year we don't have hawaiian harosa it's not like the but like how awesome is that to be able to say like okay harosa you have to have on the table because you have to have on the table and whatever but to be able to say like maybe it's not not just one but it's one and and it's what an amazing way to get kids involved also like you talk about this so much getting kids involved in cooking in the kitchen and like a scavenger hunt especially this time of year like pull whatever like odds and ends of like fruits and nuts and whatever you have mm-hmm. and like do something crazy well it's interesting that the holiday you know you, you alluded to your was it your niece or your nephew who's seven your niece yeah you know my the verse of the question of did this happen is this fiction or nonfiction? my favorite piece of torah on that of all time was from rabbi david wolpe mm-hmm. whose line was i don't know if these stories are true but they don't tell stories like this about you or me <laughs> It's not about whether it's fiction or nonfiction. It's about right. something bigger. But then there's this weird paradox of Passover, which is that it is supposed to be elastic. Like you're supposed to make up new things. You're supposed to have your children do scavenger hunts. It's supposed to not be the same year to year, precisely because you're supposed to invite your children into asking questions like, wait, don't we always have this haroset? Why are we eating this haroset? And then that's like a gateway to telling them about the Exodus first by some logical system. And yet Passover has this quality for many of our families of like, if it doesn't feel like last year's Passover, then it's fundamentally broken, something wrong. It's just a weird kind of thing. It's the whole thing is supposed to be kind of biodynamic year to year. It's supposed to be different each time. Right. I guess like the point is like, it just has to happen. And the structure is always going to be the same because you're not making up like a new order necessarily. You're not making up like, I mean, maybe you're adding songs and we're constantly doing that part of it. But if the architecture is the same, then who cares if you change the bricks out or the paint color? Yeah. Although even the architecture, I sometimes wonder whether we could have more fun with the architecture, acknowledging that you're supposed to have the order. But like a, a cousin of mine, I remember posting on Facebook a couple of years ago where he said, I don't know what to do. My kids are really little. My favorite part of the Seder is the songs at the end, Chad, Gad, Ya, et cetera. And he's like, but everybody's going to be asleep by then. So what do I do? And I was like, sing them earlier. And he said, I literally never thought about that. Like I'm not, you're not allowed to sing Chad, Gad, Ya earlier in the Seder. It's true. There's actually, there's two things that that reminds me of. One is that this year we were talking about like, how are we going to do this? And like zoom and the whole thing. And and my mom was like, let's just do the stuff that we love together at the beginning which is like, we do a song, which is like, which is the best, best, best Passover song ever. And it's always at the end and it sucks because it's at the end and everybody's exhausted. Yeah. So let's just do the, at the beginning and then everybody does their own Seder, which is like exactly what you're saying. The other thing that my mom did a few years ago, is she said, everybody, you know, you're doing the beginning of the Seder and everybody's starving. And so by the time you get to the meal, A, you're starving, but B, you haven't even paid attention to the first part. So she turned the part where you have the car pass, and this is probably not traditional or quote unquote permissive, but she turned it into like its own course. Mm-hmm. Like that's when she does, we do celery salad as car pass, the hard boiled egg and the gefilte fish and the Moroccan fish that she does or the whatever Greek fish she does. So at that point, at least you've like eaten something, you're satiated and then you do the Seder, like the beginning part, and then you have dinner. So it turns into like a three-course meal. When I took over Seders for my mom, we started doing the same thing also. I grew up with, you eat a 
boiled potato and salt water for carpas and then you're done because boiled potato and salt water is a green vegetable. <laughs> like like a fish is a green vegetable also. When we took it over, we, we said, listen, it's a dips course. We want to do everything that we do is dips and everything we do is vegetables. We do fish later on. We do hard-boiled eggs later on, but we do an elaborate dips course and there's good halachic literature on this. So it's very not traditional, but it's, it's not that it's unprecedented in halachic literature or in contemporary responsa. We do a whole bunch of mix of dip things. We do artichokes with like a garlicky dip. That's a big winner. We've done a kale salad. We've seen people do like a really good vegetable soup. We always do French fries and dipped in ketchup. If you do like a dairy seder, which we're thinking about doing for the second night this year, which is crazy. A crazy oh my God, they're blowing my mind. Right? You could do bananas or strawberries dipped in chocolate or Nutella. Um, what you're saying is fondue. And fondue. Exactly. What? But fondue. I know. Who would think? And and once you do that, a a it's um it it does calm everybody down. Oh, guacamole, always guacamole. It calms people down in the dips course, but then also people are kind of snacking throughout yeah. Magid. And so it means like also you can do a little bit less of an elaborate meal at ten, eleven o'clock at night, because people have basically have you know, between you've eaten that, you've eaten the matzah, you've done the maror, you've eaten the hard boiled egg, and now, you know, soup the main and, and one or two things and, and you're pretty much done. I love it. Also because the carpas means appetizer. Like it, it sort of feels like you should be able to have like wings if you want to have wings. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what the halakha is around it, but like. <laughs> I'm a pluralist, so I'm okay with that. I'm not sure that, um, that all the traditionalists would go for actual main courses earlier on. But no, but I think dips is so fun. So I had a friend who texted me and she's like, I have so many Kalamata olives. What do I do with them? And I was like, make a pate. Awesome on matzah. It totally fits into the dips thing. Yeah, well, we also, I told you before, we do six caro sets. And that I found to be, it's both a way to honor heritages. So we can do like my mom's apple, yeah. walnut, Manischewitz wine caro set, which is delicious. Mm-hmm. And we can do my mother-in-law's date, walnut, wine, Tunisian caro set. And I mentioned the Hawaiian one, but we also do chopped liver as part of the caro sets. And there's no caro set like chopped liver. I mean, talk about that, that Hillel sandwich with like matzah and horseradish or romaine and chopped liver. Now it's like an amazing sandwich. That just sounds pretty good. So let's talk about lamb for a second. So you alluded to it before. So what are the things that you've done for your Pesach lamb? And then I want to talk about lamb as a Jewish issue. Yeah. So my, my grandmother always did lamb shank. So when I started doing the lamb, I started doing lamb shank. But I actually, I think lamb shank sucks. I think Agreed. you do braised and it's like, it sort of looks beautiful. There's this bone and the meat, but you start picking the meat off the bone and it's not great it's like a little bit fatty there's not too much meat it's a little bit of a pain and so I started doing shoulder and I loved it because you could do a bone-in shoulder which is beautiful and stays like so delicious I think like you just braise it forever and I did like different versions of it I did pomegranate and red wine one year I've done like a lemony white wine thyme like more springy thing with artichokes and then I've also done boneless like a tied boneless shoulder which is also awesome and this year because it's just it's just us and i still want to do lamb i'm doing lamb chops which is way too crazy to do for a big seder both like logistically and like it's expensive but for a small seder to do lamb chops with like a parsley pistachio chimichurri thing i'm stoked because lamb chops that's a baller idea i i I didn't know what to do with the fact that like 
a month ago, I got a grow and behold order with this beautiful wrapped tied uh, lamb roast, boneless yeah. lamb roasts. And I was going to do it showstopper style, maybe with pomegranate, maybe with a, a gremolata. But there's not, not everybody's a lamb eater in my house. Just my 11 year old is a big lamb eater. But also like if my parents were coming and my brother's coming, I, I can't, I'm not going to serve that for the, for basically me and Jesse. So we're not going to do that, but maybe I should go ahead and get a couple of really nice lamb chops. You know, if you, if you've done Passover before, you've probably done something bigger than what you're doing this year. And if you've never done Passover before, you're still like having to sort of contemplate all this stuff. I think chops are fun. I think you can make them ahead of time a little bit. You know, you could sort of do like a reverse sear, leave them in the oven at 200, 250, nothing's going to happen or eat them room temp. Like that's, it's also going to be okay. As leftovers, they're awesome festive lend themselves to like a fun sauce whatever thing marinade there's so much superstition about lamb and uh and about roasted meat in general there's this uh talmudic text which we don't have to go into but we'll attach it to the podcast for those who want to look at it one of my all-time favorites where the rabbis say in the mishnah that in places where jews were accustomed to eat roasted meat on passover the night of passover you're allowed to do so and in places where they were not accustomed, you're not allowed to do it, which is a fascinating mm. way of thinking about law, which mm-hmm. is your custom drives uh, your behavior, which is basically true for Jewish history around lamb. Communities, Sephardic communities did lamb on Passover, and it's pretty consistent. That's what you're kind of supposed to do in the Bible is roast a whole lamb. Uh, and Ashkenazi communities didn't because they didn't want it to look like they were still living in temple times. And then they give this example of this guy, Todos the Roman, so a Jew living in Rome, who had a custom to sacrifice a whole goat, effectively a crucified goat, that is to say like a a fully skewered goat on a spit. And the rabbi said to him, you know, if we had power over you, if we had control over you, uh, we would really prevent you from doing this because it makes people think that you're really offering up the Passover sacrifice. What I love about the text is that, um, number one, there's an acknowledgement of local culture and local custom and that it's legally instructive, but also it feels so consistent with how much anxiety around power there is with food, how much control there is over food. Like you, you know, you throw out an idea of do this in some radical way and you're um, with Jewish tradition. And then the food police start coming in. (laughs) It tells you that this goes back a long time, that the rabbis themselves were kind of the food police. If you're eating this on Passover, you're threatening the social order uh, in some way. There's there's two things that to me like stand out. One is that that's the whole sort of point of Passover, which is like, there's not really rules. It's sort of about how people before you did it, right? Like this kidney thing is sort of weird. The new quinoa thing is like sort of bizarre, but it's sort of always about like what people did before you. Like my grandmother, for example, is so bizarre, didn't eat yogurt on Passover because there was like- Because she was lactose intolerant. No, because like it was yeasty or something. There's like some weird explanation that I, I probably need to ask my dad to clarify about, but- do you need yogurt? So we don't eat yogurt. But I'm sure if I asked like my rabbi, he'd be like, you're crazy. I don't know. Eat yogurt. But it's all about, that's one of these traditions that I hold on to. Even more than the stuff that we do for the Seder, it's the stuff that we don't eat. Like she ate peas, but not lentils. Like there's, there's weird stuff there. And the other part is like, it's always a little bit bizarre to me that rabbis who probably didn't cook themselves make all of these and it's today, it's especially, it feels especially poignant. Now, not today, like today, today, but in this era where rabbis are making all these rulings about what to eat and what not to eat and how to eat and what plates and, and the pot and how did you wash it and whatever, when I guarantee most of them who are making these rulings don't cook. 
they don't have to deal with the logistics around it. That is, that's, that's totally right. And there's actually, there's good both sociological literature and even some halachic literature about this. Chaim Salvechik has the most famous essay on this, Rupture and Reconstruction, in which he talks about how when the sources of authority around the kitchen move to the books, as opposed to being passed down domestically from, from mother to daughter, it actually makes the rules much more stringent because by definition, what you figure out how to do in your kitchen is rooted in one type of authority and authenticity and what happens in the books uh, looks really different. I will say I feel pushed and pulled even by that because I'm aware that I am both like the product of my mother and grandmother's kitchen and also really pushing against it in all sorts of ways and, and doing things in my Passover kitchen that would like horrify my bubby. (laughs) Memory. Um, so even, I'm not sure how the shift to the modern kitchen, whether it's actually about a retrieval of a certain authenticity with respect to power and authority, or whether, or whether we're really re- even there rebelling by being back in the kitchen, we're rebelling against these sources of authority uh, at the same time. I don't know. Seems like it's whole, it's, it's whole beast. <laughs> yeah. All right. So tell us just a couple of, um, a couple of other tips or special things that you do around Passover eating, your favorite things to eat on Pesach, your favorite things to do at the Seder, and then I'll give you a couple of mine. Okay, awesome. I mean, I think matzo ball soup is like one of those things that I was saying that our house never felt Ashkenaz at all because I feel like my dad's culture always dominated, but matzo ball soup is something we always have, always from a box. If you talk to Shannon Sarn, I think she'll agree with me on this, but like I think box matzo balls are incredible and far superior to any other hack trick that anybody's putting out there on the internet. You can always doctor them up. You can add stuff to it. You can make it crazy. You can do Mexican matzo balls. You can do like whatever. But I think box matzo balls is like something that always is on my table. Homemade chicken soup. Do you have any trick for your matzo balls? Like follow the directions on the box. Okay. Fair. Nothing crazy. I think like actually my like trick is you boil them in salted water it's amateur hour to boil them in chicken stock or your chicken soup because they absorb. Allison Roman in the New York Times just did this whole like Passover thing. And she says she doesn't boil the matzo balls in the chicken stock because it makes the chicken stock or the chicken soup cloudy, which is BS. The reason not to boil your matzo balls in the chicken soup is to not use up your chicken soup because the matzo balls absorb so much liquid. Cook them in boiling salted water and then serve them in the chicken soup. Agreed. That's a no-brainer. We make, my mom makes an amazing fish. We always do gefilte fish, which is purchased, although I have a thought about it this year. And then she makes a fish that's so actually my, my Aunt Laura's mom's. She was Hungarian, but her husband was from Salonika. And so she does like white fish that she just like coats in matzo meal, shallow fries it in olive oil. And then the sauce is amazing. It's red wine vinegar and walnuts. And you just spoon it over the fish like right before you serve it. And it is so good. And it's like, it's one of those things that we, we started making after a Passover Seder we did in Colombia at my grandmother's house when I was probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight years old. But is so good. And a great alternative for people who aren't gefilte fish people, to have fish on the table is awesome. Yeah. But to do something different there. Like I said, we always do celery salad. Our hard-boiled eggs, we do, my mom does jaminados, which is you cook them for an eternity, boiled in their shells with red onion peels, coffee grounds. And so the outside gets this really dark burnished color, mm-hmm. which naturally turns it into like, people like try to char their egg with like a lighter or something. And it looks no. whatever, dumb. 
the to do haminellos is amazing. There's awesome recipes out there. Joyce Goldstein has one and they inside they're like creamy and delicious. I don't know. That's something that's delicious. So I'll give you a couple on our end. Um, I'm thinking about this year doing a deviled egg for one of the hard boiled eggs sections. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody loves deviled eggs. Um, I do a great deviled eggs and everything bagel deviled eggs where mm-hmm. you use everything bagel seasoning is only for kidney oat eaters and with a little bit of smoked fish in there too. And it's totally amazing and delicious. Chop it up inside um, the mash when you put it back in the eggs. This is not really a cooking tip, but it is a, a good maror tip, which is, and you got to start now. Whenever you're listening to this podcast, start now. Take a kosher Passover bottle of vodka, open it up, pour out a little bit, you can drink it, and um, put in some freshly grated horseradish a few days before um, the Seder, and then put it in the freezer before the Seder starts. And then when you get to the maror course, whatever maror you eat, romaine or horseradish, you eat the maror, and then you got an ice cold horseradish vodka chaser. Game changer. It totally, it transformed the the feeling at our Seder last year. And then, by the way, you get some great Passover Bloody Marys the next day. Vips we talked about before. Uh, We talked about lamb, uh, and that's important. General rule, buy Ceylon now uh, and use it in everything. Ceylon is a miracle ingredient. It's kosher for Passover in most of its places. Get the kind without sugar in it. And, of course, chopped liver is critical. Uh, You make your chopped liver? Of course. Amateur hour? I've never done it. I've never made chopped liver, but... Yeah, well, you can you can either make your own liver with like raw liver, which is a little complicated because you gotta cook it in a way that gets the blood out. But you can also buy broiled livers and then just cook down your cook down your onions and a lot of schmaltz and blitz it all together, and it's and it's incredible. Okay, last uh, last question: Is this your first time doing a seder at home? No, it's not. I, I actually have done. I think I've done two of my own in my New York apartment, mm-hmm. and let's say two in my own apartment. Passover is really my mom's holiday. So we've always been together for it. So I've always done it with her if, if I'm not in New York. Yeah. So um, any tips and suggestions for folks who might be doing their first state or creative activities to do, especially you have a little one at home, you know, who may not make it that late into the evening. Any tips or suggestions for folks who might be doing this for the first time? I think a few things. I think one is don't think about what you normally eat and stick to that kind of stuff. I don't think it's the time to start buying like kosher for Passover stuff. And I think it holds true, especially for dessert. I think people get overwhelmed by dessert. Anything that has like potato starch, matzo farfel, matzo meal, it's not the time to start like playing with this stuff. Like find a great flourless chocolate cake recipe. And what I wanted to say before actually is like, I feel like people are taking two different approaches to the cooking in the time of Corona thing. One is like keeping it super simple. And the other is finding projects to tackle I'm the latter camp to do like really fun stuff. I think it's the year to do one or two things that are like projecty. One could be gefilte fish, which is what I think I'm going to tackle this year. You're making it for a small group of people. Get at your cleaver. I don't know, or food processor. I think it's an awesome time to try a project like that and see if it works and see if you like it. The other would be like French macaroons, which are totally doable and fun and just like egg whites and almond flour and a great filling. And they're fun. They're awesome to do with kids also. It's awesome to like go to your pantry and find like Nutella or find, make your own Nutella or jams or Ceylon or your Haroset. Like that I think would be an awesome project. I think in terms of tips, I think braising is your friend or slow cooking and it doesn't just apply to meats, but Adina Sussman is doing an amazing braised cabbage, which is like taking the internet by storm. I think in terms of like 
doing a meal, I think that this for Shabbat also, whatever you're not fixating on last minute is going to be great. I think if you're going to do fish and you're not doing gefilte fish, doing like a slow roasted piece of salmon that you throw in the oven right when the Seder starts at 200 or 250 could be amazing. The less you're like, and lamb chops aren't my exemption here, but the less that you're like freaking out about last minute, the better. Make your matzo balls ahead of time. Just pop them in the water in the soup that's like simmering right before you serve it. Nine by 13 pans are your friend. It doesn't mean like you're making kugels, but like if you're trying to do like a kosher Passover kitchen and you don't have a lot of stuff, a pot that's going to fit soup and that's that are going to serve for like meatballs later in the week. Keep it simple. Stay fresh. Like work with what you have. Yeah. I would say that the one about cooking the types of things that don't make you have to stand around in the kitchen is a huge one, especially because you wind up with a situation, especially in families like ours, where you and I are, we don't have families where we, we are like a balabusta in the kitchen and there's some <laughs> other patriarch or matriarch running the Seder. Right, exactly. <laughs> you want to be able to basically cook things and for them to be done and to be really good two to three hours after they were fully cooked. Um, I think that's critical. I would say another suggestion, especially if you have kids in the house, make a haroset that you're really passionate about and then make a haroset bar. Set out a couple of bowls of nuts and fruits and allow people to design, kind of design their own little paste. Um, it's a fun activity, especially for kids. You also always can have kids who are like, I don't like this part of the haroset or that one. I find with our kids that if they're involved in making what they're eating, they're actually more adventurous because uh, they'll taste things as they go. Um, so I think that's a, that's a good activity. And, um, and, and also beyond that, like, I think, uh, you know, Passover meals the following day during the, you know, during the day and during the week, this is a weird moment uh, as we talked about before because of grocery availability. And there is just a chance to do light vegetable based things at this time. I, I was in the store yesterday for a brief run and I saw the whole wall of desserts and there's always like this Pesach food panic. I'm like, oh my God, we're going to be hungry. But nobody actually is going to eat the raspberry jelly loaf. And so, you know, you can you can kind of live without it. Some decent chocolate, a good shakshuka, and you have pretty much a pretty good Pesach meal. The other thing is just serve food that lives well with a busy table. One of the things we do in our house is we have a lot of Lego on the table, especially this year with our kids. It's good for them to be entertained while, like, kids are easily distracted. And But we also have a kid's... Um, for on the afternoon before Pesach, before the Seder, um, set up at the middle of the table, our centerpiece is the crossing of the Red Sea in Lego. Oh, and you don't want to serve, you don't want to serve the kind of food or in the kind of serving trays that winds up dominating the table. You want to allow it to be a playful space. And I think that that also helps kids understand that it's their space also, that they're not sitting at some other formal table that's at, uh, at, at their space as well. Any last, uh, last comments, Sandra? No, I think this is awesome. I think <laughs> there's like so much fun to have this year, especially because you're not cooking for so many people. And I think like letting it become your own and maybe it's the year you, either it's the exception of traditions or it's the creation of new ones. I think it's the year to go a little nuts and like just try some crazy stuff and see what, see what sticks for next year. Yeah. I remember the first time we did a Seder, it was because my parents were overseas and we were kind of stuck doing it. And, um, and that was the first time that we started to play. We had a bunch of friends over nobody had kids yet. And we, we did the whole Magid sitting on the couch and really reclining and really having a nice discussion. And, and I think the, the weird moment of this is we talked about before the joy of, of being home with a lot of family meals. And, um, 
And we've already kind of raised the question of like, wait, if we're having dinner every night, how is this night different from any other night? And that's a perfect Pesach question. And it's kind of the moment to say, okay, so your regular regular night dinners look one way and act one way. And um, and this is an opportunity to mix things up and, and have a little fun. I love it. I think like the, the in terms of like kids stuff that I wanted to just add is one thing that I'm doing for my daughter this year is um, Kedem grape juice pops instead of like her drinking grape juice the entire night and going crazy or doing popsicles. So she's having just like sucking on grape juice pops. I think a fun thing to do at the end of the night would be s'mores mm. with matzah instead. I love that. In marshmallow, you just like, it maybe during the week if you're not like lighting a fire, but even over a burner that's on. And then the next day, harosa milkshakes. I think it would be amazing leftovers. I love it. Anyway, thanks all for listening to our show. And a special thanks to my dear friend, uh, Sandra DeCapua, for being with us this week. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music courtesy of SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. And you can also write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and anywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week. Chag Sameach, safe, healthy, kosher Passover. And thanks for listening.